Today on Blue 58, the Packers have a strong offensive line in general, but there are more than a few question marks too. Is it going to end up being an asset to the team, or will they have to keep dumping resources into fixing it? Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. We're talking offensive line today, and this one is always a bit of a challenge. How do you talk about the offensive line if you're not going to sit down and grind tape on every single play? I think our approach the way that we've been doing our previews and the way that we've kind of done things related to the offensive line in the past is a good way to do it. We're talking about expectations and what that means. And I think talking about expectations in the way that I'm going to approach it today is especially helpful because I think of, because of how I, I like to think about the offensive line. So I've, I've devoted a little bit more time than usual this offseason to studying the offensive line. And I've learned two things. First, the offensive line is basically incomprehensible unless you are in the room really working with a team trying to figure out what they're trying to do. There are some great resources out there. Brandon Thorne uh, is a writer who does some fantastic work on offensive and defensive line stuff in general. I would recommend checking out his work. If you haven't already, if you're not aware of that, go ahead and give that a read because he he does a great job of making it as accessible as possible, but it's very hard to figure out on its own. And in the past, we've developed stats and, and ways of looking at the offensive line that I think help a little bit, but still, it's it's pretty hard. But looking at things like we do from high, moderate, and low expectation standpoint uh, really works well for the second thing that I've really learned about offensive line. And I think that is that the offensive line is really more like a an organism by itself that has multiple individual parts than it is a bunch of individual players trying to work together. All right? So if you think of that group of five guys up front as one kind of creature made up of five smaller creatures working together like almost a hive mind, that is the best way to understand how that group interplays together. And it helps you understand what a guy's role is within the organism organism as a whole, especially on a team like the Packers that loves to move guys around a lot. So you might have Elton Jenkins at left guard, you might have him at left tackle, you might have him at center, you might have him somewhere else. It's just about trying to put those best five guys out there and getting them to work as a cohesive whole together. Look at the NFC Championship game just as an example. On the one hand, the Packers did something really well. They were able to get their best five guys out there and put together an altogether pretty cohesive group. However, the overall strength of the group was still lowered because of just the attrition that they'd undergone over the last month of the season or so, the final month of the season. They lost David Bakhtiari. They ultimately lost Jared Veld here before he even got on the field. And a couple other guys got a little bit banged up down the stretch. As solid as that group normally was, they ended up being a little bit of a vulnerability for the Packers in the NFC Championship game. That is, I think, the best way of kind of categorizing the discussion around the offensive line as it pertains to the Packers. Is that going to really work? I don't know, but I think it helps us understand what our expectations for guys should be and how they fit into the offensive line as a whole. So what should our expectations for these guys be? Let's talk about 
all of the offensive linemen on the Packers. I'm going to start with the guys that I think are going to be the likely starters for the Packers this year. Number one, David Bakhtiari. In a normal circumstance, he would be the de facto starting left tackle and will be hopefully until the end of time. Uh, I think he has pretty high expectations coming into 2021. We have to have pretty high expectations for him, I guess. Uh, On the one hand, he is coming back from a torn ACL. On the other, when healthy, he might be the best pure pass blocker in the league. And I think he's a perfect example this year of high in terms of expectations, meaning different things. So what does that look like for him in 2021? I think for Bakhtiari, getting to double-digit games this year and playing those games at a high level would be a pretty darn successful season. When he's on the field, when he's ready to go, he better be David Bakhtiari. But if the Packers want to bring him along slowly, I think that is perfectly fine. And if he can get to 10 games this year, that'd be great, because that would mean that he's probably healthy down the stretch for the playoffs if that ends up being a consideration for the Packers this year. And that is ultimately the goal. They want to be peaking at the end of the season. I'm thinking physically unable to perform list at the start of the year just as a precaution. Though, again, you can never really rule anything out with a player like David Bakhtiari. Elton Jenkins next up. He is facing high expectations for a different reason. Uh, He is the Packers' offensive line unicorn. He's the only guy who can start at all five positions and play well at all five positions. Call him the rug because he pulls it all together. What does that look like then for 2020, 2021 rather? Well, I think it looks like 2020, but a lot better. The Packers are going to ask him to do multiple things again. He's going to be starting at left tackle to start the year. He'll probably spend a goodly amount of time at left guard. And I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up taking a couple reps at center if they need to stabilize things there a little bit with Josh Myers having the job right off the bat here. This is a pretty high bar here. Uh, probably the highest bar of anybody on the Packers starting offensive line. David Bakhtiari has the benefit of some lowered expectations in a way coming back from a torn ACL. Elton Jenkins does not. He is heading into his third year. He made the Pro Bowl last year, and he is going to be counted on to do big things for the Packers this year. If he can, it's going to be awesome. If he can't, suddenly the left side of that offensive line is looking pretty iffy. Next up is Josh Myers. I would say he has pretty high expectations for this year, and I think that's because he has the biggest role right out of the gate of all the Packers' 2021 rookies. Eric Stokes and Amari Rogers are going to play early too. They're going to have important jobs, but neither of the roles they're going to be asked to play are going to be as important as being the starting center for the Green Bay Packers. And I think that should be what we expect from Myers. He should be, barring an injury, barring something totally unexpected, the wire-to-wire starter at center this year. If he can stabilize that spot, this pick was a big win from day one. We're not asking him to be Corey Lindsley, but he should be out there uh, as the starting center from the get-go, and hopefully he can uh, handle things for the Packers uh, to a level that there is not that big a drop-off. We're looking more for continuity than level of play, though. We just want the Packers to have stability on the center of their offensive line. Lucas Patrick is our next topic of discussion. First guy, I think we have to have moderate expectations for this year. Of the five starters, of the five starters in a normal year, I should say, he's got to be, I think, the weakest link on the offensive line. That's not to say he's bad, but I think you just more frequently see his limits than other guys. Compare him to a guy like John Runyon, who we'll talk about here in a second. Not quite as big, not quite as athletic. The ceiling is just a little bit lower there. 
what he makes up for it with intensity, with now experience, uh, being with the Packers as long as he's been. But I, I think it's fair to say he is the most limited of the presumed starters for the Packers this year. What does that look like then for Lucas Patrick? Understanding that he is a little bit more limited than some of these other guys, I think you've got to ask two things of him. First, don't be the guy that screws things up for everybody else. That should be the baseline expectation for every offensive lineman. But for Lucas Patrick, given that, again, the ceiling is a little bit lower for him, that is, I think, the biggest ask. Don't, if you, even if you are perhaps the weakest link on the offensive line, avoid being exposed as the weakest link. Second, don't lose your job for performance reasons. Think back to 2019 when the Packers were trying to phase Elton Jenkins into their offensive line for Lane Taylor. Jenkins was going to get Lane Taylor's job eventually, but it wasn't as it ultimately turned out because Taylor was playing badly. It was because Elton Jenkins was better, and then Lane Taylor got hurt. Uh, But Jenkins, Taylor made Jenkins work for it. He wasn't the anointed starter from day one, even as a second-round pick. Lane Taylor played well. And Jenkins was starting to get some reps when Taylor got hurt, but it wasn't just a slam dunk that we're going to have Elton Jenkins in the lineup. That is what I think the Packers need from... Lucas Patrick this year, because I think if they had their druthers, it would be John Runyon in there. He's probably got more upside than Lucas Patrick, and he probably is a better long-term option than Lucas Patrick. But it's better for the Packers. It's better for Lucas Patrick if John Runyon can't just go out and take that job right away, make him work for it, partly because they're probably going to be expecting him to be starting on the left side of the offensive line, not taking Taylor's right guard spot. Billy Turner, out at right tackle, has got to be facing some high expectations, too, as we jump back up to the the highest level that we're looking at here. He's getting starting right tackle money. He needs to play like a starting tackle. That was not always the case in 2020, though he did get moved around quite a bit. And in terms of the picture for him in 2021, my hope for Billy Turner is that he gets a chance to sit at one spot all year. If they want him to be a tackle, let him be a tackle from week one through week, what is it, 18 now. If he can play like he did when David Bakhtiari was healthy, just holding down that right side of the offensive line, that would be ideal. Just get him out there, let him stay at one spot, and uh, do Billy Turner things. Because I think at his best, Billy Turner can be a pretty solid offensive lineman. Not perfect, not perfect, but a pretty solid offensive lineman. Next up is the guy who could be the first sub off the bench, uh, even as the season gets underway, John Runyon. Still, I think pretty moderate expectations for our boy John Runyon. He's just got to be ready to grow this year. Got a few opportunities, uh, make the most of them this year, and maybe make a real push for a starting job. He's got to look like he's a starter because he may actually be a little bit of a starter at the start of this season because of what's going on on the left side of the offensive line. Same kind of goes for Royce Newman as we start digging further down the list here. Uh, The Packers' second-drafted offensive lineman this year, I think, also is facing pretty moderate expectations. He is probably the most physically gifted lineman the Packers acquired this year. They like Josh Meyer's athleticism, and a lot of the the draft Knicks like him, too, for that that reason. But I think Newman's size and his athleticism puts him ahead of Meyer's as well. And I think if you ask him to tap into those gifts in a specific way, you're going to, to probably be rewarded this year. So the Packers aren't going to be looking for him to be a starter, be a worthwhile pick just for this year. Who knows what it's going to be like in 2022 and beyond, what they're looking looking at from him. But I think 
in the short term, he's just got to be able to be that kind of super sub sort of player. Uh, maybe not to the level of an Elton Jenkins, but maybe a guy like, I circle back to this example a lot, but Don Barkley, uh, probably even a little bit better, certainly a better athlete than Don Barkley was, but a guy who could step in and play right guard or right tackle if needed. Heck, even a little, little center now and then. Not too particularly great effect for Don Barkley, but uh, maybe Royce Newman can have a little bit better results in that area. What about Yash Nyman? There's a name we can throw out there for, for you. Moderate expectations in my book. I went back and forth on this a little bit. On the one hand, he is pound for pound probably the most athletic player overall on the Packers. You look at his athletic testing numbers at his size, it's unbelievable. He's a great athlete. He has physical gifts that you'd kill for. And he's kind of been this would-be prodigy in Green Bay for a while. They've kept him around. They've moved him to the active roster. He was on the 53 all of last year, but really hasn't materialized into any meaningful playing time. And looking at the depth chart, I think it's going to be hard for him to make a run. If the Packers aren't going with him when they desperately need a starting tackle, and they start talking about guys like Ben Braden having a realistic shot at being a starting tackle too, you start to wonder if there's a real shot for him. Uh, given the combination of the death chart and what they seem to think of other guys. But to meet expectations this year, I think he's still got to make a real run at a starting job. If he doesn't get that starting job because it's a numbers problem, you've got Billy Turner at one tackle spot, you've got Elton Jenkins at another, or maybe David Bakhtiari at another, that's fine. But he's got to at least look like he belongs at this point in the program. You can't get by on potential forever. Eventually, that potential has to become actual and Yash Nyman has not been able to do that so far. What about Ben Braden, though? No matter what Adam Stenovich says, whether he's going to contend for a starting job or not, I think you've got to have pretty moderate expectations for Ben Braden. In fact, I almost went with low for him. He has not really shown that he can get it done in his NFL career to date. He's bounced around, pretty journeyman guy so far. And I think, kind of like with, with Yash Nyman, the biggest thing for him is just going to be fighting hard with the other swing guard tackle type guys. You know, Royce Newman, Cole Van Lannen, Simon Stepanak, heck, Yash Nyman, I guess, uh, though he's almost exclusively or is exclusively a tackle. He's just got to fight hard to beat those expectations, to meet those expectations. And it's really only because of how the coaching staff has talked to him that he's anywhere higher than low uh, in my personal categorization of these things. Simon Stepanak comes up next, and I think he's got pretty moderate expectations too. Like uh, Ben Braden, I toyed with the idea of putting him at a, a low expectation level this year, but the Packers liked him enough last year to draft him, knowing that he was probably going to play in 2020. So I think he's got to pay off that faith, uh, show that the that down payment was worth something, show that it wasn't a completely silly thing to do. Maybe that ends with him making the 53. Maybe that ends with him in the practice squad. I think he's just got to look like he belongs. And if he's out of the league at the end of training camp, I guess we can say that was that was a miss. Cole Van Lannen is almost the 2021 version of Stepanak. Not because he's injured, but because I don't know if the Packers can realistically expect him to play this year, just looking at how the depth chart looks ahead of him. So moderate expectations uh, for Van Lannen as well. Packers drafted him knowing that you know, he's in the midst of a position change as well. They drafted him knowing that it was going to be a tough numbers game ahead of him. But still, I think he's got to make it look like that wasn't a dumb decision. Now we've got a few guys with low expectations uniformly. We're just going to tear through these guys uh, pretty quickly. First, Jacob Capra. 
kind of the undrafted free agent version of Royce Newman. He started at left tackle, right tackle, and guard at San Diego State University. Best case scenario for him, and I think all of the rest of these guys, is probably practice squad. If they're getting to the 53, something has probably gone pretty seriously wrong ahead of them on the depth chart. Cody, uh, Coy Cronk is, uh, is kind of in the same boat. Lucas Patrick type uh, went to a program, a couple programs in the Big Ten, so he's got a, a nice pedigree there at Indiana and Iowa, but he has a bad, bad injury history. Uh, but you do like that big college experience. If he can end up on the practice squad, there may be some developmental potential there. John Dietzen, uh, Cole Van Lannan's running mate at Wisconsin. Sort of also in that mid-position switch sort of process like Van Lannan a little bit, though he's got more time working inside than Van Lannan does. A long injury history there as well. Just, I think for him, it's basically proving, yes, I can play at the NFL level. Some time away from college football, went back into it. Uh, switch positions. Yeah, I can play at the NFL level. Uh, maybe, you know, I had more left in the tank than I even thought back at Wisconsin. Uh, for him, I think the practice squad too would be a perfectly fine destination. Zach Johnson, another former undrafted free agent working on that tackle to guard switch. For him, I think you're looking at practice squad in the best case scenario as well. Pretty low expectations. It's just part of the process for him. You got to try as many guys as you can. Maybe you find one among these undrafted free agent types. Finally, Jake Hansen, uh, one of the last or the last uh, offensive linemen of the three the Packers took in the 2020 NFL draft. Again, low expectations here. And I don't know how buried you can really be on an offensive line depth chart, given how quickly things can change and how few guys ultimately can play that role in the NFL. But he is pretty, pretty buried on the center depth chart. Who would have to be unavailable for him to get a real shot in the lineup? Well, Josh Myers is probably the, the day one starter here. Elton Jenkins would probably be the next choice there, although you may go with Lucas Patrick, but still that puts him down behind Myers, Jenkins, and Patrick. So he's at best right now the fourth option should the Packers need some serious help at center. That's not a great path to a roster spot. So if he can end up on the practice squad, things have probably gone pretty well for him. That's the offensive line in a whirlwind 19-minute tour. What do you think? Agree? Disagree? I think they're, uh, I'm certainly open to being wrong on this stuff because I almost certainly am, but that's just how it goes with the offensive line. Uh, a lot of prospects to like here, still some significant questions, and as we pointed out earlier, most of them on the inside of the Packers' offensive line. Let's talk about Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, Chapter 8, as we continue our sojourn through this book by Tim Layden. We are now going to talk about the West Coast offense. Overall, I like this This chapter shows the evolution of strategy, kind of how that process works. You end up, if you're Bill Walsh, uh, in a bad situation. Your draft pick Greg Cook, who looked like he had all the potential in the world, gets hurt. So you need a new set of plays that work with the players you got. Then the system works, so you try it with better players, and it works even better. No more people want the system, the system gets better, and then people start making systems to start beating your system. We covered that whole evolution in this chapter. You go from Walsh running it in Cincinnati to Walsh running it with a couple Hall of Famers in San Francisco, more than a couple. Uh, then people coming up with ways to try to stop it as it's spread throughout the league, and you end up with systems like the Tampa 2. And all of these things are playing out in one way or another uh, in the NFL today. 
far as interesting little nuggets in this chapter, I think the first clarification right out of the out of the gate is important. What people typically mean by the West Coast offense is really the Bill Walsh offense, the true West Coast offense in in that it came from the West Coast would be the Don Coryell, Ernie Zampice sort of offense, all those guys. That is to say, horizontal passing in the Walsh offense versus the vertical stretch the field down the field offense with Don Coryell. So what does that look like practically? You're looking at swing passes, you're looking at checkdowns, you're looking at stuff running in flats, you're looking at crossing routes. Get the ball in space through timing and precision, in short. One, two, three, dump it off. One read, two read, three reads, dump it off. And this chapter really emphasized well that this is a system, not plays. Plays are working together. People are working together within those plays. You're not just running a bunch of routes. You're trying to con- uh, accomplish something very specific with the routes you're running. And that is something I think that is forgotten a lot of the time uh, as you you know, you know just play Madden, um, things like that. This is a play that works. Uh, we're going to run it because this guy is always open on this play. That's not how it works in real football. You've got to get everybody working together. And that is something that, again, came across really loud and clear in this chapter. Everybody's got to be working together. The quarterback, the receivers, the tight ends, the the running backs, it's all got to go together. I also like that this uh, this offense really emphasizes the value of running after the catch. I think we've seen that loud and clear in the difference between Matt LaFleur's offense and Mike McCarthy's offense. LaFleur seems really really keen on getting guys in space and making it so they can run after the catch. That's why there have been so many more explosive plays in the Packers offense than we saw in the latter McCarthy years, uh, because it just is schemed better to get guys moving once they've got the ball in their hands. That is crucially important, and I think that is where Amari Rodgers really has a chance to shine this year um, as the guy who, who fills that sort of player-on-the-move-all-the-time sort of role. Is it going to work? Who knows? But I think he's got a real chance to to do something pretty cool in the offense. Finally, in terms of notes in this chapter, I think they're really underselling the split between Bill Walsh and Paul Brown. Look into that if you never have. Uh, you can look at the book Montana. I forget the the uh, author off the top of my head, but it's the the seminal biography of Joe Montana. For a little bit more on that, you can look at. Uh, um, Michael McCambridge's America's Game for a little bit of stuff about that as well. Uh, But the short story is that it wasn't just a mildly acrimonious split between Walsh and Brown, as was uh, told in the book. Uh, Paul Brown was actively trying to ruin Bill Walsh's career as he was leaving Cincinnati. He wanted him to coach for the Cincinnati Bengals or for nobody. He was actively telling people, do not hire Bill Walsh. He will ruin your football team so that he could keep him in Cincinnati. It's a wonder that nobody put two and two together and thought, why do you keep this guy on staff that's going to actively ruin my football program? Surely you're not that much of a charismatic football genius, Paul Brown, that you can fix this one guy that everybody else would have a problem with, right? Ultimately, the 49ers come out ahead uh, by deciding to not listen to Paul Brown and, and hire Bill Walsh. It seems to have worked out pretty well in San Francisco, but uh, Layden really undersells the split between Walsh and Brown here, and uh, we were really that close to not getting to see Bill Walsh and what he was able to accomplish in the NFL. Finally, Packers connection. Literally, the first sentence of the chapter 
makes us uh, bring up something about the Packers when he refers to Vince Lombardi's power sweep as the Green Bay sweep. I have literally never heard anyone call it that other than right here. It's always the Lombardi sweep or the power sweep. And as you might guess, I have a little bit of vested interest in the terminology surrounding this this particular football play. Can't imagine why you guys put that one together for yourself. Uh, we also have to talk about Mike Holmgren, obviously. Uh, he was a big practitioner of the West Coast offense. You can go and look at his playbook at footballexos.com. I highly recommend that website. It's a lot of fun to poke around on and see what people are doing with their playbooks and stuff like that. And hiring Mike Holmgren to run the West Coast offense basically affected the next 30 years of Packers football and kind of put the Packers on that path to con- path to continue running some variation of that offense for generations for a while. So the Packers hired Mike Holmgren. Uh, obviously, that went pretty well. He ultimately left, but they wanted to be able to keep doing what he was doing because it had worked well with Brett Favre and stuff like that. So they hire Ray Rhodes. That doesn't quite work out. But they bring in Mike Sherman, who ran a very similar system. They bring in Mike McCarthy, who's fresh off the West Coast offense tree. And then they bring in Matt LaFleur, who's from another branch of the same tree. Mike Shanahan uh, learned not quite at the foot of uh, Bill Walsh, but had some some firsthand knowledge there and uh, was one of the, the early innovators with taking the West Coast offense and, and moving it in sort of a different direction, maybe a more run-based direction, uh, some, some more play-action heavy stuff even than the offense was already. And uh, it just goes to show how influential this offense was in in many ways. Think how many careers it affected here. We just lift, lifted, listed off a bunch of them, and we haven't even talked to, about guys like Andy Reid or John Gruden, both of whom grew off that Holmgren tree, who came off the Walsh tree, uh, who basically invented this whole thing. So that it, it shows how ideas spread and how how adopting the ideas that are, are really game-changing can set you up for success in ways that you might not even realize, how it might affect you and people you know for a long, long time. Making the right call is is very, very important in the NFL. The amount of money and and professional prestige at stake. I'll just look at what it did for Bill Walsh and everybody who followed after him. You can draw a line from Bill Walsh succeeding with this offense all the way to the modern-day Packers right now. That's a lot of success that Walsh sowed, really, the seeds of 40 years ago, more than that. Uh, And it's still bearing fruit today. So I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you tuning in and I would appreciate it even more that if you enjoyed this episode, you'd share it with somebody you think would enjoy it as well. That's the number one way we grow, getting more people involved in what we're doing here and continuing this conversation uh, around the Green Bay Packers. Getting more people involved is the quickest way to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And that's great because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.